Hello, and welcome to History for Hard Times. I'm your hostess with the mostest, today, the mostest poison. Mwahaha. It's still spooky season. I heard someone today say that this year is going by too fast, and I want to know what kind of acid they take because. I mean, I love October, but usually it's gone in a blink, and instead, in this year of 2020, I get all excited that it's Friday, and it is in fact Tuesday. It might have always been Tuesday. It might always be Tuesday. I feel like Jack in the Shining at the Overlook Hotel. But, you know, with no spoopy action. It's kind of depressing. Anyway, we're going to go all the way back to the 1600s today on a journey through time to distract you, to educate you, to titillate you. This is turning into a Nine Inch Nails song. Speaking of Nine Inch Nails, it's Halloween! Did you know that Harry Houdini died on Halloween in 1926? He was notorious for disproving fake paranormal activity and famously disproved several seances. So I personally feel like he rolls over in his coffin and screams into his coffin pillow every time someone does a seance to contact him on Halloween. Also, COVID-related tidbit, sugar was rationed during World War II, so no one trick-or-treated from 1942 to 1947. Five years! That makes me wonder if that's why you see so many vintage Halloween ads from the 1950s, because no one could celebrate for five years, so we all went bananas as I feel we will do presently in 2022, or whenever this is all supposed to be over. So let's talk about this week. I just got back from a trip to Austin a few days ago, which was lovely, but eight hours in a car in one day is a bit much. I learned a lot about myself, mainly that I talk about murder a whole bunch. I got to hang out with my friend Kyle and Kyle's friend, slash my new friend Trey, and we of course decided to start another podcast because we're insane. We also looked at several caves and crabbed walk down to a beautiful cliff overhanging a river. I was in full business getup due to some other work projects, so that was interesting. Then Kyle and I headed back, ate some lovely catfish in Georgetown, and I'm pretty sure I scarred Kyle for life with my true crime obsession. Because he texted me that he got home safe, but I have to wonder if my stories made him walk around the car twice and double check that his front door was locked. Sorry, Kyle! And while I didn't fall off the cliff in Austin, I sure as heck did slip on a wet painted handicap sign in a parking lot, which prompted everyone within a mile radius to yell, are you okay? Like after the first two, I yelled, nothing's broken but my pride, and hobbled back to the car like the hunchback of Notre Dame. There is so much irony in slipping on a handicap only sign. Ooh, speaking of the Hunchback of Notre Dame, did you know that Victor Hugo basically wrote that as a fan fiction to stop the city of Paris from tearing it down? Yeah, he slut-shamed King Louis-Philippe into putting on a restoration competition among the architects. Without further ado, this is the story of Julia Tofana, the Queen of Poison. Really quickly, I'd like to drop a trigger warning. This episode contains content involving murder, poison, rape, abortifactants, and torture. Sources for today's episode were lifeinitaly.com's article, Italy from Baroque to Napoleon, Genevieve Carlton's medium.com article, Meet the Woman Who Poisoned Makeup to Help Over 600 Women Murder Their Husbands, Renaissance Quarterly's journal article, Abortion and the Confessional in Counter-Reformation Italy by John Christopoulos, and of course, our friend Wikipedia. In the 1650s, a woman was preparing dinner for her husband. After serving him the bowl of soup, before he could lean forward and take his first bite, she suddenly screamed for him not to eat it. Racked with guilt and under the severe questioning of her husband, she revealed that she had bought poison from a local shop and served it to him. The papal authorities were called and Giulia Tofana was arrested. Giulia Tofana was born in Palermo, Sicily in the early 1600s. 
I can't read that without going picture it, Sicily, 1600s. Like two of you are gonna get that joke. Now, before we go any further, I need to tell you that because this is such an old historic case, the information is sparse. Some records say Julia Tofano was born in 1620, but others say she was an old woman when she was arrested in 1659. And you can't be an old woman in 1659 if you were born in 1620. In any event, we know she was in fact born and did in fact live, we just don't know her exact age. Italy in the 1600s was recovering from war and plague. Really, anywhere at any period of time in the world from 1300 to 1800, it feels like, was recovering from war and plague. That's just me. That's just a, just adding that in there. The economy was blossoming after the last Italian war, and Italy was world-renowned for the Renaissance period that had just ended. For reference, Michelangelo died in 1564, and the Baroque period that they were smack dab in the middle of. Despite the strong culture of Italy at the time, in 1620 an estimated 1.7 million people had already died from plague. Now, we know Giulia was raised by a single mother, and she is believed to be Tofania Diadamo, who was executed July 12, 1633, for poisoning her husband, Francis. Some historians think Giulia learned the art from her mother and continued the practice. Giulia herself confessed her poisoning career began that year, but here's a thought. Julia was known as a champion for women who had been sold or battered, because remember, women were currency and property until recently, and that's in quotes. That's why jewelry is given to women, not because men don't look great in diamonds too, but because your husband owns you and the bank account, so if you need to hawk something to get out of town before he beats you to death, you have your earrings and jewelry. There's so many stories about this, but I digress. So if Julia's career started in 1633, when her mother was either burned at the stake, drowned, drawn and quartered, or hanged for supposedly poisoning her husband, when 1.7 million people had died of the plague, could it be that that was the breaking point for young Julia, who spent all of her time with monks and apothecaries learning about botanical and chemical properties? Think about it. You tell me. In any event, in 1633, young Julia opened a cosmetic shop in Rome with her daughter. She was married at the time, but we don't know to whom. We do know she was widowed after that, so I think it's safe to assume she was married, her husband owned the shop, and then she performed what the internet apparently calls an Italian divorce by poisoning her husband so that she owned the shop outright. Julia mainly sold cosmetics, face powders, tooth powders, rouge hair powder, and any popular beauty cream or oil of the age. There are accounts that she sold the poison and the beauty powder originally, but eventually she created Aquatofana, a tasteless, odorless liquid that she sold as a fake religious trinket. I like to picture a woman shaking poison into super wine like Christmas came early! Or, do you hear what I hear? No, you don't, because you're dead. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about abusive people here, and I, I don't condone murder. I don't. I really don't. Back to Aquatofana. This poison was presumably a mixture of arsenic, lead, and belladonna, so expertly crafted that four to six drops given over three or four days would mimic an illness and kill a grown man. Because Julia was trying to help a sister out, and she wasn't like the usual poisoners of the age who were trying to get rid of political opponents or killing a sibling to be the king of Nowheresville, Julia's clientele was very protective of her, and they had certain codes. They didn't give out her name, they used the code name for the Santa Claus holy water when ordering, and after their husbands were dead, they would insist on an autopsy whenever possible so that the death was not suspect. Additionally, Julia herself never sat for a portrait, expanded her business, and was careful to fly under the radar, as it were. This is part of the reason why so little documentation is available today. 
I'm going to editorialize a little bit here, but I imagine that if she was such a brilliant chemist that she was able to create something that could kill a grown man in four days for over 50 years, and considering the fact that rape and affairs still existed, she likely also sold remedies for birth control and abortifactants of the time. So while she would be well known in lower middle class circles and likely whispered about in the upper class, she was engaging in pure witchcraft according to medieval standards and wouldn't have wanted to be well known. So here we are back in 1659 when the guilty wife told her husband not to eat the poison soup. The papal authorities are called and there are two versions of what happened next. One version states that she was retired and living at her country estate when word reached her that the papal authorities had picked up her daughter and three employees from the shop and tortured and hanged them. When she found out she fled, but she was later caught and hanged. There's a ghost tour in Rome that takes you by Julia's apartment and says that in the dead of night, you can hear Julia calling for her lost dog. The second, slightly more believable version is that she was in Rome when the authorities came. She fled to a church and asked for sanctuary. It isn't documented how long the church kept her, but at some point a rumor started that she had poisoned all the water in the church, and the public became so enraged that the papal police had to hold them back and had quote unquote no other choice but to remove her from God's house, rape, torture, and hang her, then throw her naked mutilated body back over the wall of the church for the priest that had taken her in to deal with. If you ask me, this sounds more like a classic case of someone in the Pope's backyard had too much sway over the people and was becoming a nuisance so it's time for them to die. But that's just my opinion. Auditorily takes a sip of tea. Torture in the medieval era is well documented for being extremely painful and humiliating. The mindset was that the more, you, more shame and fear you put into people, the less they'll sin, and the more they'll pay for you, the church, to cleanse and protect other members of your family, dead and alive. John Christopoulos, in his article, Abortion and the Confessional in Counter-Renaissance Italy, states the mindset, In the last three decades of the century, bishops and popes attempted to eradicate the practice of abortion by imposing shaming and increasingly severe punishments for its procurers. Additionally, it's well documented that the medieval torturers were usually holy men of the church who believed they were doing a good thing and extracting a confession to bring their brother or sister back into the faith. The irony of this, of course, was that no one believed a confession if they only used, and I quote, light torture. They almost always killed the accused, and in some cases, they would dig up the corpse or the remains and burn or drown it again. Why? I am not sure. I can't think of a single person in the afterlife, no matter how holy, that would see that and go, good, yes, extra punish my meaty remains. In the 1600s, we're smack dab in the middle of the Spanish Inquisition, which ran from 1478 to 1834. Additionally, Joan of Arc was burned alive in 1430, and did you know she wore men's armor to keep the guards from raping her, so they murdered her for cross-dressing? All I'm saying is that while Rome stayed hush-hush about which torture methods were used to extract the confession from Julia, there was very likely rape and burned body parts involved. She confessed to over 600 deaths between 1633 and 1659, although the actual number is questionable. Because she was being tortured, and she likely didn't remember every account, just how many sales were on the list since her store had opened. Her case was so famous that a hundred years later, on his deathbed, Mozart would tell his wife, someone here has given me aqua tofana and knows the exact hour of my death. Historians think he actually caught the flu and died from excessive bloodletting, but who knows, he was pretty saucy. Amadeus, Amadeus, Amadeus. By the way, if you have not watched that movie, please do. It is fantastic. And that, my friends, is the fascinating story of Julia Tofana, the Queen of Poison. Do you have an opinion? More historical facts? A grandma who married six times and her husbands died under mysterious circumstances? 
let me know by writing into historyforhardtimes at gmail.com. This week, I honestly don't have much going on. I'm furthering the same projects I discussed last week and trying not to lose my mind in quarantine. I miss traveling. And now I need to go to Rome and talk to Julia Tafana's ghost. Thank you so much for spending time with me today, and I hope you write your own history and maybe don't poison your husband. Just call the cops. Love you. Bye. Thank you.